How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Few animal species are as revered as much as salmon, an icon of abundance and perseverance that is deeply rooted in the story of the American West. Yet dams, land development, and industrialization have decimated rivers and streams salmon need to survive, and efforts to restore salmon runs are tangled up in a complex web of conflicting societal values. Today we will discuss salmon and how they relate to water, energy, farming, and other interests in California and the Pacific Northwest. We'll also look at a new state plan that will profoundly change the way California approaches competing claims for water from the expansive Bay Delta. Here to address those issues and answer questions from our live audience at the Commonwealth Club, we're joined by three experts. Phil Eisenberg served in the California legislature from 1982 to 1996 and is now chair of the Delta Stewardship Council, a new state agency. James Norton is river guide and creator of a PBS documentary, Salmon Running the Gauntlet, which recently aired on PBS Nationwide. And Jonathan Rosenfield is a conservation biologist at the Bay Institute, who's been involved for a long time in salmon restoration and water issues. Please welcome them to Climate One. <laughs> Gentlemen, thanks for coming. Uh, Jim, let's begin with you. Uh, I was reading a quote recently in Phil Green, Paul Greenberg's book, Four Fish, where Harry Truman's Secretary of the Interior, Julius Krug, stated quite explicitly that uh, in the 1940s, the United States was going to dam up a bunch of rivers for cheap uh, electrical power, hydroelectric power, and that the trade-off would be uh, the sacrifice, his words, of, of salmon runs. Can you Paint for us sort of the broad brush the last few decades of this trade-off between uh, salmon and energy that we've made in the, in the western United States. Well, I'd say there's one part of that trade-off that we overestimated and one part of that trade-off that we underestimated. We overestimated our capacity to mitigate the effects of that dam construction. We were inspired in part by our confidence somewhat deserved confidence that we could apply an increasingly sophisticated understanding of fish biology to the problem of their decline in the form of hatcheries, uh, transporting fish in barges and trucks, protecting them from their natural predators, raising them in net pens in the ocean. And it's turned out uh, to be much more complicated than that and has never really worked. And the part that we underestimated was how significant these fish were to the broader ecosystem. We really did not understand at the time the degree to which we were sacrificing one energy system for another. This wasn't just a matter of eliminating a species for much broader social and economic benefits. It was, uh, in fact, an entire nutrient transfer system. And so what we ended up trading was one energy system for another. Well, uh, let's ask uh, Jonathan uh to expand on that energy transfer system, there's a, a quote in the film, in Jim Norton's film, where they uh, refer to salmon as swimming fertilizer sacks. So explain for us why salmon matter so much and how other unique species in terms of the energy transfer system between the seas and mountains. Yeah. The, uh, the Pacific salmon are 
just such an inspiring creature, and I think that's why people gravitate towards them. Uh, and I'm, I'm really glad that uh, Jim's documentary covered this energy transfer thing because it, it, it's so neat. Um, and, and, and in some ways, it's, it's obvious, but what happens with these fish, uh, their spawn in fresh water, uh, grow for one, two, three years, depending on the species and the population. Then they migrate to the ocean where they spend several years feeding and growing uh, some of these fish, you know, three feet or more in size, 30, 40, 50 pound fish are, are common or at least were common recently. Uh, and then at the end of their life, they do this, this migration that we're all sort of familiar with uh, upstream over Hill and Dale uh, to their original spawning grounds uh, where they spawn once and die. Uh, their bodies then are available to all of these river creatures and creatures that live along the the, the rivers, the riparian zone, uh, that feed on these carcasses and then disperse these nutrients out into out into the surrounding landscape. Uh, so in the documentary, you learn that if if, if you look at uh, trees and bats and things in the ecosystems where salmon spawn, you can find. The, the signature of ocean-derived nutrients, right? So, which makes sense because you have millions of fish that weigh 20, 30 to 50 pounds each, uh, migrating into a system and then dying. That's that's a nutrient transfer from the ocean uh, to each of these little watersheds. And a neat little side story on that is that in California, we've we've done some studies and uh, found that in watersheds where salmon spawn. Uh, you can detect that ocean nutrient signature in wine grapes and even in the wine that's produced from those wine grapes, whereas in watersheds where salmon have been eliminated, uh, you can't find that nutrient signature. So uh, your question's a little bit broader than the nutrient transfer. I think that's, that's one example of the scale of how salmon affect our human environment. Obviously, they're a source of food. Uh, they're a source of jobs uh, related to producing that food up and down the coast uh, and communities such as uh, small communities like San Francisco, Monterey, Portland, Seattle, uh, developed around a fishing industry. That's, that's why they are where they are in many, in many cases. Um, so they're, they're, they're important in that way. And, and then, of course, they represent uh, a, an ecosystem uh, that many other species depend on. Uh, many other fish species, bears, eagles, you see some of them in Jim's excellent video. Um, so they really kind of represent the West Coast coastal watersheds. Uh, and one other thing that they represent is the ability to tie together uh, different ecosystems from the high headland streams to the ocean, to the coast, back again. Uh, and in so doing, they tie together the communities of people uh, along their path, um, so they're they're an inspiring creature in in any number of ways. Phil Eisenberg, that's quite a system. Uh, but some people believe that we spend too much emphasis on a single species. There's there's actually several spe uh, salmon species, and there are the subject of litigation and, and organizations. Do we spend too much time or too much energy focusing on a single species such as salmon, rather than looking at the whole uh, ecosystem, the big picture? Well, the the answer is yes and no. Uh, if you think the only problem in the ecosystem of California or America is salmon, that's a mistake. But it is an important part of a large array of problems. 
And I look at it, and, and my general perception is uh, human society uh, throughout the world, throughout history, has managed successfully to screw things up. Not intentionally, directly, but in, but we have no ability to easily, rapidly, or with uh, uh, precision remedy the problems we've created. Easy to screw it up, hard to fix. Uh, the explanation in, in, in the documentary and in, in the, the lesson you've been talking about that, uh, gee, public works projects during the, the Great Depression of the 1930s to provide energy, particularly to rural areas and, and impoverished areas, a social good. But the theory was you could just have a lot of hatcheries around and somehow the fish species would be the same as people knew it to be. It wasn't true. is isn't true today. Uh, and so the tension between human society and, 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 and the values of the place in which we live are on a continuum. It is true that all of us tend to, uh, uh, to uh, deal with spot examples as an illustration of a larger problem. Mm-hmm. Outside of this area, you go to healthcare. everyone's most feared disease is the possessor of a particular program, a particular policy, where the argument is, Healthcare. What does it mean? What is it? Uh, is is or should it be available uh, to the larger society? Remains addressed through a pretty narrow prism, mm-hmm. but it's an important prism. Salmon are iconic in our understanding. Uh, bird species. You'd probably pick uh, the, the bald eagle for the uh, for the most pedestrian of reasons, which is a national emblem. But that becomes a very powerful mobilizing tool for a movement to do things like. The most latest version is let's get the lead shot out of uh, uh, out of shotguns uh, so we can start, stop the damaging damage to birds, condors, uh, um, bald eagles in some cases from chewing up carcasses full of shot lead shot. Uh, all those tensions go on all the time. This is a tension. Uh, one of the problems, of course, you face is if you make a decision on one species. What are the consequences for other species? There are in the, in the, in the Bay Delta area now eight protected species in the endangered species uh, list. There are what more uh, 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 tentatively uh, identified as threatened. I, what, I forget the precise number, but it's got to be up to 17 on some count. And all the decisions you make for one problem as defined have consequences for the other. Do they work together? Uh, the, the, the tension here, I think, is primarily a tension between human uses of water and environmental demands, both of which are values held by society. Hard to reconcile with. Jim Norton, you spent a lot of time in the making of this film with uh, people who rely on fishing as part of their culture, their livelihood. Let's talk about the human dimension, the tension between human uses and, and the fish, fish needs. What did you uh, learn in spending some time with these fishermen and people who relied on salmon so deeply and, and what we've learned from our uh, well-intentioned but ill-fated uh, Ill ways to manage a complex ecosystem? Well, I learned that they're struggling, and we've lost about 30,000 commercial fishing-related jobs on the West Coast in the last 20 years. Uh, the folks that we filmed with were reduced to a three day fishing season between dusk and dawn, three 12-hour periods. A year. A year. So it's a remnant industry, if you could even call it that. Uh, It's more a way of life and, in some respects, an expensive one for them to keep pursuing, uh, both emotionally and economically. There's no doubt 
that the history of commercial fishing includes considerable overharvest. It was an enormous impact on fisheries. But I think it's really important to understand that most of the commercial fishermen who you'll talk to, and I say most, uh, avoiding the absolute, all of the commercial fishermen that I talk to understand that that history is gone. And what they're fighting for is not the same levels of harvest uh, that their ancestors benefited from 100 years ago. And there's a new normal and when it comes a to very new, Yeah, it's a new normal for those guys. And one of the other aspects of the film was this unintended consequence. There's some, uh, the hatcheries. We thought we could replace nature, as Phil said, and sort of uh, basically have the same outcome. But now salmon are conceived in plastic bags. They're fed frozen pellets. They're conveyed, transported barges using spewing diesel fuel up and down rivers. I mean, what, what have we learned from this, and what do you think we ought to do to, to manage that complex ecosystem better? I'd get out of the business of managing complex ecosystems uh, in general. Um, I think that we've learned that over the last 150 years that there is no appropriate surrogate for the natural productivity of these systems. We've learned that abundance, true abundance, is the default condition of these places. It's not something that we tease out of them by being really clever. And although we now have a suite of arguably monstrous alternatives to salmon swimming up and downstream. None of it has ever come close to providing the kind of culturally, economically, or biologically enriching abundance that made salmon so important to these ecosystems and the reason they have such an enduring hold on our culture. There's just no way to do it. Phil Eisenberg, you're chair of a state agency that in some respects is responsible for managing a complex ecosystem. You know? mm -hmm. So like your response to what Jim said is that uh, humans don't do that very well. Well, and uh, that was my position too. They, we don't do it very well uh, because we all have priorities, but the real question in a society is, is this one thing the most important priority for society to the exclusions of everything else? If it is then you can make a host of decisions that arguably will have a, a significant impact. So, for example, if you said that restoration to some level of a salmon population, put aside the distinction between spring-run salmon and fall and the difference, forget all the details, the science, which are really important, as our, <laughs> as our scientists will tell us, forget all the details. As best I understand the science there are multiple factors in society that affect uh, fish species, including salmon. But probably topping the list of scientists, most commonly listed, would be two, the flow of water and the presence of habitat. Now that's, you know, you'll find people to argue with that, and there are endless other things. Uh, the problems are caused by the Sacramento Regional Sanitation Plant and its connection, discharging of ammonia, which creates ammonium, which interferes with the food web. It's the problem of Hetch Hetchy, which is water that used to flow through the Delta, but now comes to San Francisco through, its, through a pipe like a peripheral canal. It no longer flows through the Delta. It's the evil exporters who take water out of the Delta. You know, every, it's, it's the evil striped bass not a native fish, that eat the, sal the young salmon that are the predator. Everybody's favorite explanation for the problem. But if it's really flow and habitat, then in some fundamental sense, the decisions that were made 
not in, not with foresight, but just individual decisions uh, of Congress to essentially create land grants in America and turn millions of acres of land over to the state of California, who turned it over to citizens for a buck an acre, roughly. Uh, and that became a vast agricultural region we now call the Delta. That removed almost all of the habitat. Almost all of the wetlands in California have been removed by human growth. Now, there are ways to address those problems. They are draconian for large So we struggle because, you know, we are not a society given to, uh, we're given to great excess verbally, but we're not given to draconian directions to people. Uh, we're very incremental, I think, as a society. We struggle to find a balance to define what an improved situation would mean. And what we're trying to do with the, the Stewardship Council is figure out how to balance the demands on water and ecosystem, which the legislature and the governor have now declared to be co-equal goals in California, not without significance since we have fought since really before World War II the question of whether the human use of water is always more important than anything else. And at least in California, the answer is no, it's not. And that seems to be one of the big uh, shifts of this process that you were chair of to say that. And, and the value of species-specific documentaries, arguments, and issues are it helps educate the public to a larger issue of what we now call the environment or ecosystems or whatever it is that lead to some social action. But it doesn't solve the tensions between competing demands. They're always there. Phil Eisenberg is chair of the Delta Stewardship Council. Jonathan Rosenfield with the Bay Institute. Let's get you on this. You, uh, first of all, on the co-equal, was that a significant accomplishment to have a state embedded in state law, these co-equal values between rest, restoring the ecosystems and I, I think it says supply, reliability of water supply? Yeah, I, I think that's a major accomplishment to, to uh, put those two on sort of an equal footing. Uh, it's because, you know, I'm a human and I care about humans and uh, we need a reliable supply of water and we need a healthy environment. Uh, so I, I don't want to see uh, one traded off for the other. But usually and, that's the case. Humans are kind of have a, a leg up, right, on, right. on nature and California's put them on the same level. Right. The, the, the thing that I want to get across to, to, to the audience uh, and maybe to Phil is that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't need to be framed in terms of it's either this way or it's that way. Either the farmers in the Central Valley get their water or we have salmon. Uh, I mean, if you were going to pick low-hanging fruit of species that could be restored, uh, that produce jobs, that produce food, salmon would be your choice. These are not delicate species. These are not the much-talked-about canary in the coal mine that's, ooh, you know, it's a symbol that we're in trouble sometime in the future. Uh, salmon are hardy, adaptable, incredibly creative species that have survived for millions of years through several ice ages in every watershed up and down this coast. And the fact that we can't maintain them in a system says that we've way, way overreached any semblance of balance between human use and and, and what our ecosystem needs. I mean, the fact that these fish are in trouble says that, that we are in trouble. Um, and that doesn't mean that, well, it's, you know, we, we can't have any human use of water and every time we tip our 
toe in the water, we're causing you know, perturbations that are going to harm some sensitive species. That's not the case. We can take water. We can have dams that generate hydroelectricity. Um, we can have farms that use subsidized water to produce crops. We just have to do it intelligently uh, and with some semblance of balance that, that we uh, left behind many generations ago. And would you agree that uh, organizations and campaigns that go species by sea species, toxin by toxin, sometimes are narrowly focused and, and don't uh, take account for the whole ecosystem or the big picture? A lot of advocacy organizations are focused on right. on one org- one animal, one right. toxin, just do save this bird and the world will be a good place, or get rid of that chemical, the world will be a better place. Right. And part of that is, you know, you, you only have a public with limited time and attention for issues. And so uh, let's talk about the organism that protecting it provides subsidiary benefits to lots of other organisms. And, and so that, you know, that focus naturally uh, happens. Also, our, our legal system is, is set up to, you know, I mean, what's an ecosystem? That's something scientists can debate forever. But we know what a salmon is. We know, you know, what a salmon population is. And so it's it's easier to... Uh, articulate our, our fixes and our policies when we're focused in on one species. But I just want to, you know, recall for everybody that these species that are now seen their demands seem to be in conflict with each other uh, coexisted very well for eons before we started building dams and uh, you know developing their habitat. Uh, on, on a massive scale, and in fact, they still exist there, right? They're still there, hanging on. Uh, and so what that says to me is that we don't need to back off to some pre-European uh, or, or pre-human state, uh, we, but we do need to back off, um, and we do need to give these things the space that they need to, to, to grow and, and do their business. And when we do that, we'll actually benefit from that. So Jonathan mentioned dams. Uh, Jim Norton, do you think that dams, a number of about 100 dams across the country have come down already? Do you think that there are, are more should come down or any specific ones that are on your, uh, your list? Yeah, more dams are coming down. There's two big dams on the Elwha River that are coming down in September, one of which uh, at the time it comes down will be the largest dam removal project in the country. The Condit Dam on the White Salmon, tributary of the Lower Columbia River, is coming down in October. The Marmot Dam on the Sandy River came down two years ago, as did the Savage Rapids Dam on the Rogue. Uh, These projects are increasing in scale, complexity. They're a contagion in the way that they inspire people to reimagine what's possible for how they interact with their environment and the places that they live, and they're only going to get bigger and more numerous exemplified by the agreement to remove the four dams on the Klamath River by 2020, which will be the largest river, resta- river restoration project in the world outside the uh, perhaps the bombing of the dams on the Tigris and Euphrates, which somebody mentioned only took one day, but we didn't have to go through environmental impact statements at the time. <laughs> um, and then the projects that are going on in the San Francisco Bay watershed and up on the Snake and Columbia systems, you know, these are really exciting things to be aware of. There's probably no better opportunity to participate in large-scale ecological restoration like there is with dam removal. We're probably not going to roll back the edges of San Francisco as an urban environment, but by restoring the integrity of these systems, in part by removing dams, 
we can do, do something on a scale that uh, we haven't been able to do before and that, again, I think is only going to get bigger over time. And let's talk about the economics and motivations for this. These are dams that are blown up, and then somebody bears the cost of restoring uh, the ecosystem to where it was. If there's hydropower, is that replaced? Let's talk about, you know. Yeah, it's different in every situation. There's always a lot of variables that have to go in to uh, the decisions about the removal of the dams. There's different engineering for each of those dams, and there's different postmortems that have to be uh, executed in those systems after the dams come down. Generally speaking, uh, the anecdotal evidence from the now hundreds of dams that have been removed around the country is that the surprise is on the resilience of the system and its ability to almost immediately get back to where it wants to be or some semblance of where it wants to be. This stuff works. This is not a black box. Dam removals are not an experiment in any way. We are doing it because it works biologically and then, more importantly, it works for people. It really expands the portfolio of life history options for us in, in place. And people get excited about that. Um, in the cases where there are significant uh, hydropower resources at work, obviously those are being compensated for by renewables and efficiency or some other uh, generating source. But you know, that's only speaking very broadly if we speak about specific dams, I'd be happy to tell you how they have come down or why they're going to come down. Well, one that you want to come down is, is the Butte or the uh, uh, Centerville Dam? It's a, these guys can probably talk a little more specifically about it, but it is an example to the extent I'm familiar with the story of something where we remain stubbornly insistent to a certain version of things despite you know, almost a century of evidence that uh, it, it's outlived its usefulness or is leading us astray, and the Centerville power generating station that's run by PG&E is on the National Register of Historic Places. When you have a turbine that's so old it's on the National Register of Historic Places, it's time to reevaluate its benefits to society and whether it's worth compromising one of the last great wild salmon spawning grounds in the Sacramento Basin. Um, Jim Norton's filmmaker and documentary uh, uh, maker of salmon running the gauntlet. Phil Eisenberg, let's get you in on, on California. Should California be looking at tearing down some dams? Well, California is. Uh, 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 Klamath River discussions have included California. There, there, there are roughly 1,200 dams in California. number varies depending on how small you want to count. But of those, the state figures that about 200 are significant-sized, not giant-sized, but significant-sized. Uh, but the history of California is that water developments uh, largely started with regional efforts, didn't start with the state government, never, didn't start with the federal government. Uh, the state and federal government came in very late. So the state and federally um, developed uh, storage facilities are largely the products, a few in the 30s, the 1940s, the 50s, uh, and the 60s, but then the state came in with the state water project, so essentially what you had is eras in California's history where local projects, whether big ones, uh, Hetch Hetchy here, the Owens Valley for uh, the city of Los Angeles, or dozens or even hundreds of smaller dams up and down the state were regional, local, sometimes individual property owner projects. Uh, however, in the last 15 years, we've started to move back toward regional projects as opposed to statewide 
big projects. As a matter of fact, the, the old question of the Delta conveyance facility, call it a peripheral canal or whatever else it is, may well be the last debate for a major statewide project in California. Uh, we don't have a state water system in California. We don't have a federal water system. We have a multiplicity of thousands of water districts with thousands of miles of pipes, and everybody owns different things. And some of the facilities, the dams, are owned by multiple agencies for multiple purposes. One of the great lessons of public policy is opportunity strikes when a public infrastructure is in need of repair or replacement. I mean, it's just kind of human nature. If you're going to, if you know you're going to have to spend a lot of money to replace, can you replace anything on the historic registry? I didn't, you know. You probably have to preserve the building, right? Okay. You preserve the building. But then you face actually spending a ton of money to replace something that's been around. That, per, that provides, that sobers people's judgments and provides you with an opportunity to also loosen up all the expectations of all the interested parties who have benefited from that facility or who fear they will lose benefits in any new construction. It's not easy, but that's the time to do it, and that's where most of the, as I understand it, that's where most of the action has occurred. I wanted to, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about uh, the, the draconian measures that, are being contemplated to to restore this balance between our ecosystem and and other human needs for water, uh, but but I I really think I want to emphasize that a lot of the measures that we're talking about are are not that draconian, uh, and that it really depends on what you think about as draconian. I mean, to me, uh, making the second largest river in California, the San Joaquin River, dry in most years so that you walk across it, mm-hmm. that's draconian. Right. Uh, demolishing 95% of the wetlands that used to be in this area. That is draconian. Uh, having pumps in the central or in the southern delta that uh, make rivers flow backwards away from the ocean, that's, that's draconian. Um, so while around the state there are, there are some dams that have outlived their usefulness or perhaps never had a usefulness, uh, that, that even their owners and operators don't want anymore. I'm thinking of dams on the Yuba. There are other dams on the Tuolumne. There are other dams we could go into that could be removed. It's not all as you know uh, uh, dramatic and draconian as blowing up a dam. Uh, one of the signature achievements of the Bay Institute in the last few years uh, is is the settlement of a 20-year court battle to restore the San Joaquin River mm-hmm. uh, so that it can be called the San Joaquin River. Again, uh, not just a riverbed. Not just yeah. a riverbed, uh, and that that isn't going to involve uh, a lot of earth moving and a lot. I mean, there will be some of that, but it's not going to involve uh, the removal of Fryant Dam. It's just going to require that it release water, uh, because that's what that's really all the fish need is just water, cold water running downhill to the ocean. So, but just yesterday in yeah. Washington was a hearing on a piece of legislation <laughs> right. by the Central Valley interest who said, well, wait a minute. We want you, to, apart from everything else, to set aside that agreement because it affects the way we do business. Right. I mean, it's really interesting to watch some of the lawsuits that have been filed. Now that a relatively modest amount of water flows through the uh, San Joaquin, people are saying, wait a minute, water's seeping into my property. I built right up to that river on the expectation that there wouldn't be much water in it. Right. Now there's more water. Somebody has to pay for it. Right. I mean, that's the history of human civilization. But, boy, it's a real opportunity but this is America. Nothing's ever settled forever.
right? Uh, as long as we have law- our lawyers around. Phil Eisenberg is the chair of the Delta Stewardship Council. Our other guests today are Jim Norton, River Guide and creator of the PBS documentary Salmon Running the Gauntlet, and Jonathan Rosenfield with conservation biologist at the Bay Institute. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's pick up on the, the Delta plan and this tension of these competing water interests. Uh, the Delta plan explicitly in the authorizing legislation explicitly calls for reducing the reliance on Delta water. Right. Now, how is that going to happen, particularly if, if uh, someone's going to run to court every time and, and file a lawsuit and say, hey, I'm not getting my water. But, but Phil Eisenberg, you're in charge of that entity in that process. How is California going to become less reliant without using draconian measures well, on Delta with, water? With great difficulty. Uh, but it requires some uh, some acknowledgement of, of some basic facts. The the delta, which is really a part of the the, the estuary, which includes the San Francisco Bay, uh, is called an inverse uh, delta. Unlike most of the deltas of the world that flow directly into the ocean, this one kind of plops up into the Central Valley and through the narrow neck uh, at the Carquina Strait, it eventually flows into the bay, and then water flows into the ocean. What we've discovered, of course, is that the delta was historically the center fulcrum point for most of the runoff for most of the Sierra Nevada mountain ranges in California. About 40% of all the runoff from snow or rain used to flow through the delta. And by the way, precipitation, rain and snow, is 97% of all the water that comes into California. Important to remember that fact. Uh, particularly with the climate change casts that you have, because it, there are a lot of policy implications. We'll get to, what's, yeah. what's happened over time, and, and the National uh, Research Council uh, issued their controversial recent report a couple of weeks ago, and they just made a very interesting observation that cuts against total conventional wisdom. The water used here in Northern California, the Delta watershed, is about 11 million acre feet. Only a portion of that ever returns to the rivers and streams, maybe half of it. The water that leaves the delta is exported from the delta is six and a half million acre feet on average. They're roughly comparable. The consequence of that is that you have less water in a system that was once rich with water or the system adjusted to a higher level in supply. So the question is, how do you remedy a situation for a salmon or delta smelt or any or the bird species and so on? And one of the things the legislature did, which I thought was really courageous, they included the language that said decreased reliance on the delta for future water supplies is a policy of is the policy of the state of California to be achieved through using what they called regional self-reliance. The notion that the array of individual actions from water conservation, from recycling, from uh, uh, from ocean, uh, from runoff capture before it flows into the, from the endless array of things that are options to delta water should be utilized by everyone in California. But it requires those of us who tend, and I get it, I'm a, I'm a recovering politician from Sacramento. Uh, it was, it's really fun to, uh, to blame Southern California for all of our problems. But of all the water that is exported from the Delta, only about 17% goes across the Tehachapi's. The rest is used in the Central Valley, or it's used in Santa Clara County, it's used in parts of Alameda County. And then all of us, like Sacramento, where I live, we divert water that used to flow through the Delta, and we say, hey, we don't have any problems with the Delta. It's somebody else's fault. No, we're all responsible. So the mixture 
of duties and responsibilities, the value of a documentary on salmon, is, I think, a call for a more civil debate, a more rational debate, and a debate that acknowledges we are all creatures contributing to the problem. We all have a duty to help solve them. Jonathan Rosenfield, your institute has been critical of, of the, the Bay Delta plan. Do you get to get your response to Phil Eisenberg? Um, well, d- just to clarify, so I don't get in trouble. There, there. Oh, let's get in trouble. Come on. There are several plans. Yeah. And yeah. The Delta right. plan is is a process that we, which which uh, Phil is the chair of is a process that we're participating in. We're supportive of. Uh, we advocated for. Um, and and it's ongoing. There's an, another planning process called the Bay Delta Conservation Plan, which happens under the auspices of the Endangered Species Act and and provisions of state law that allow uh, economic interests that that want to do some activity that would harm an endangered species to uh, more than mitigate for that by doing some other activity. It's like if you want to build a mall here, but it's going to impact the butterfly, maybe we can create some butterfly habitat elsewhere. Okay. Works well in that kind of context, much more difficult uh, with a politically, socially, and hydrologically complicated system like the Delta. We're involved in both of those processes and and have have been more uh, critical of the Bay Delta Conservation Plan. So just to clarify. We're going to go to audience questions here in just a minute, and I want to first get to the climate impacts. Uh, This is Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. We have to talk about what, uh, in fact, Phil Eisenberg, I looked up one of your reports, looks and says that... uh, Sea level rise of 14 inches by 2050. Snowpack in the Sierra reduced by 25 to 40 percent by 2050. So how, yeah, the, I want to ask all of you, how is this going to affect salmon, Jim Norton, uh, Phil Eisenberg, how is this going to affect the water supply in California? Are we ready for the climate impacts uh, that are coming our way? Uh, the climate impacts are manifold. The only things we can say is some of them are fairly gradual. Sea level rise is probably a more gradual effect than the change in temperature, which is affecting the proportion of snowfall versus rain and the, uh, and the date at which the heavy peak runoff occurs. So I guess uh, now in the, in, in the watershed, uh, the highest peak runoff period is about a month earlier than it was 50 years ago. And everybody says, well, you know, that's interesting. So what? Our entire systems of storage, of flood control, of imperfect ecosystem benefits were designed based on climate assumptions that are no longer true. We signed legal contracts to build those things. We made promises to people of water being available based on a climate system that's no longer true. The operational and management questions are staggering. Then beyond that, the more uh, sexy sea level rise thing is of great import in the Bay, the Bay Delta uh, uh, B- BCDC uh, is conducting a little study in Alameda County, very controversial, about actual potential impacts on real on-the-ground property from sea level rise. And the building industry went nuts with the idea because, of course, guess what? If it raises 12 inches or 15 inches, a whole lot of property gets possibly flooded. Somebody's going to spend a lot of money. So the climate change is is real and significant, and you've got to take it into account uh, and we're slowly moving to the point where the ag- generally agreed upon level of a potential sea level rise of 55 or 58 inches by the year 2100 is going to become the official planning assumption for state agencies. Brown administration, I believe, is almost n- 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 there in declaring it. Uh, and probably a recommended planning level for local agencies, too. 
Phil Eisenberg is chair of the Delta Stewardship Council. Jim Norton, how will climate change impact salmon and the people uh, who depend on salmon? It'll impact it enormously because, like John very succinctly summarized, this is about cold water flowing downhill, and we'll have less and less of that. And it also makes perfectly clear the importance of restoring the integrity and the inherent resilience of these systems so that they have a chance to adapt and continue to function in a climate change paradigm. Uh, the lower Snake River dams on the Columbia River are a great example. Restricting access for what was once one of the world's most productive salmon fisheries to some of the best, highest elevation cold water habitat remaining in the United States outside Alaska. It's been referred to as the Noah's Ark for salmon because almost all of it is over 4,000 feet. All of it, I think, is over 4,000 feet. Almost all of it's over 6,000 feet. Some of the biggest snow fields left uh, in some of the biggest wilderness areas in the contiguous United States. Restoring the functionality of those kinds of systems is going to be critically important to maintaining or restoring any kind of resilience so that these systems are functioning for something other than generating electricity. Jonathan Rosenfield, do you want to jump in before we on any of that before we go to the audience question? Sure, it would just be to, to echo on what Jim said that you know one of the things we're focusing on is uh, restoring habitats and restoring uh, the wild productivity of these species because as the documentary so makes so clear, uh, producing salmon in the most efficient way humanly possible is not the way that actually protects uh, salmon. Uh, so restoring salmon to the San Joaquin watershed where the snowpack will last longer because even though it's southern, paradoxically, the mountains are higher, uh, so they'll retain snow through, through this period of climate warming uh, is critically important. Uh, and, and restoring the Snake River salmon so that they can get to high elevation habitats that will retain snow longer uh, is, is critically important. We have an opportunity to do it, and we will succeed or fail in the next decade. We're discussing salmon and their ecosystems and water in California at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Let's have an audience question, please. Yeah, my question relates to the salmon. You know, you've indicated it's been around for a long time. Um, you've also indicated they're adaptable. As a result of the barriers we've put up, you know, is there any research or observation that indicates that that might change? Thank you. We'd like to tackle that. Is the question uh, is there that their adaptability might change? Oh, definitely. Their adaptability has been significantly compromised, in large part because of the proliferation of hatchery systems as surrogates for the natural systems. Salmon are incredible expressions of the places where they live and die. There's almost unimaginable life history diversity within what we broadly refer to as salmon. Um, they're doing so many different things in so many different ways, and that resilience is the foundation of their transformative abundance. And when we start producing these fish ourselves in controlled environments, we limit that genetic adaptability, either through selection in the hatchery or inbreeding or both. And it's been an enormous problem for the, the survival of right. salmon as they go out into the ocean. Because once we release them, we take on faith that everything we've done up to that point hasn't significantly restricted their adaptability going forward, and that's not the case. And it's why, at this point, we're sort of trapped in the gears of our thingamajig. We've created this incredible system where these salmon are increasingly dependent on our management of them, 
which makes them less resilient in any kind of a future um, any kind of a future environment where they have to deal with dynamic change again. So their ability to adapt has been significantly compromised. Bill Eisenberg? Just a note. Uh, the science circle on, on salmon and, and, and the Bay Delta is much uh, uh, enthused about a, a funky little photograph that you undoubtedly have seen. It's uh, six uh, fat, healthy, young salmon uh, uh, on, a, on, a, on a background and six skinny salmon. And they are the same age, uh, young salmon, but the, the larger ones were allowed to feed in a flood bypass during periods of benefit to them as, as, as they went through their cycle, which has been one of the really interesting... St- you, you might say it's intuitive, but it's not until the studies were done. It wasn't entirely clear that flood bypasses might successfully serve ecosystem benefits as well, which has led to one of the great recommendations of science to merge the flood protection with ecosystem benefits. And you know, one of the parts of our draft plan underway now is is to limit uh, growth and development as best we can uh, in floodplains, but also to identify an additional floodplain in the southern San Joaquin uh, uh, area, uh, not far from the pumps, as a matter of, of state interest that is part of the Delta plan. That's an illustration of, of the smaller steps that are species-specific, but also pay more tangible benefits largely. And it's, it's the direction that people are moving to try to blend... Uh, to try to find double hits, Win-win, double benefit, either where or, you can. Yeah. Where you can. Let's have our next audience question, please. Yeah, you talked um, about salmon being, I guess, prevalent along the, the the western North America, and and there's various states and regions and, and Canada as well. I was wondering if you can talk. Is there any collaboration happening across those different governments, etc., to uh, to manage the the, the bigger, um, I guess, the the, the whole system of, of, of salmon issues and, and sharing learnings and, and so forth? Uh, um, Bill Eisenberg? There, there, we, we counted, uh, we stopped counting when we found there were a minimum of 200 federal, state, and local agencies with some legal authority to do with something in the Delta on either water or land or flood control or whatever. Uh, and the lesson we drew from that, I draw from it, is the American system of government is everyone's involved, nobody's in charge. That hasn't changed. Much as I would have hoped that the federal government, the state, and all the locals would say, gee, Phil, go give orders to us, they didn't do that. Uh, but there is a growing realization that without some kind of coherent common approach, you're not going to get anywhere. The Bay Delta Conservation Plan, the, uh, the, the Schwarzenegger started facilities discussion, which is continuing, uh, is one where a very elaborate uh, five federal agency sponsorship of joint uh, environmental and water resources have signed agreements, highly controversial, of course, for all the obvious reasons. But they're headed, I think, in the direction of the agencies stepping up and beginning to declare the agency's preferences more clearly rather than, as some people have charged, waiting for the, all the interest groups to tell them what they might accept. Uh, I think that's a reasonable sign. The fact the legislature created us, and, and I don't claim our power is unlimited by any means, but we have some authority. The fact they did that shocked me. I never, even though I had chaired a task force that recommended something like this, 
uh, to my astonishment, they did a good slug of what we recommended. I, I, I didn't expect that, uh, which means they're small signs, but a lot of work. That's, again, the, the purpose of advocacy is always to move the cumbersome process of society and the structure forward at the same time. You need them both. Phil Eisenberg is chair of the Delta Stewardship Council. That's the new entity you're, you're talking about. Right. We're discussing I, water and salmon at Climate One. Jonathan? Yeah, I wanted to, to respond to that question because I, I, I think it uh, identifies a, a critical need uh, for federal government uh, I- involvement and, and being a facilitator among the different states internationally. Uh, uh, when I say internationally, I mean not just Canada, but uh, Native American tribes that have treaty rights to these salmon dating back to the 1800s, treaty rights that are being uh, routinely violated. Um, so there, there does need to be an, 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 an oversight and integration of efforts uh, to protect salmon. I, I mentioned at the outset that salmon have a way of weaving us together um, as they follow their life history, you know, out into the ocean where they're just swimming around all as one big mix and then going back to their uh, natal streams. Um, the What was happening uh, and is still happening to a, a, a little bit of an extent is that people focus on the, the one species in their one river. That's their watershed. That's where they want to take action. They want to see the salmon return to their, to their fisheries, to their streams. Um, but the issues are really very similar across the range of the salmon. In large, uh, large portion, they're issues created by federal government water operations and federal projects. Um, and if you sort of divide up the systems into each little watershed group, then you're missing the larger point. Uh, so the Bay Institute has joined in collaboration with uh, commercial fishing organizations, sport fishing organizations, Native American tribes, the slow food movement, just about everybody in, a, uh, in coalitions such as Save Our Wild Salmon or the Salmon Aid Foundation uh, to kind of elevate this to, to uh, what you were, I think, pointing out in the question, that this is not, uh, there's, there's a piece-by-piece piece part of this, and then there's an overall, what, what is our uh, value for salmon and, and, and their freshwater ecosystems, uh, and how are we going to uh, deal with this problem going forward in a coordinated fashion? I just want to throw a quick monkey wrench into this by saying while I agree (laughs) that there needs to be this really broad oversight connecting things together, especially as it concerns salmon, uh, which are the ultimate transboundary creature from high elevation to low elevation, inland to ocean, across states, across international borders. The projects that we were talking about earlier in this discussion, which manifested in some kind of stream restoration, dam removal, restoring the integrity of these systems happen in large part because people at a local watershed level get together, get sick of the sequestering of information in governmental and quasi-governmental agencies, and sometimes even in the voice of advocacy that follows them into some kind of an abstraction and says, you know, we're going to go about the business of reimagining the world that we live in and figuring out how to do it. And... I think it's been enormously important in changing the dialogue of what's possible with some of these stream restoration or in the case of what Phil's working on, the restoration of an entire estuary. And I think we need more of that. Jim Norton is a river guide and creator of a PBS documentary on salmon. We're also guests today at Climate One include Phil Eisenberg, chair of the Delta Stewardship Council, 
and Jonathan Rosenfield, a conservation biologist at the Bay Institute. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have, thank you for waiting. Next audience question, please. Uh, yes, yeah. I'm an Oregon native originally, uh, but one who has sport fished uh, Oregon, Alaska, Washington, California uh, as well, and have followed the salmon over a number of decades. And the discussion here today has been largely about the big river systems, the Columbia, the Snake, the Klamath, the uh, Sacramento, San Joaquin. And yet, if you look statistically, the small river systems that are undammed are suffering the same or, in some cases, even greater depletion of the salmon resources. So I'm not arguing that the dams are not important. They certainly are, that habitat on the big river systems are extremely important and in the delta. But something else is going on, obviously, uh, in the greater ecosystem that is significantly influencing salmon in the other uh, rivers that flow directly into the ocean. Could you comment a little bit about that bigger picture in terms of what is needed uh, and perhaps, to, to put a, a point on it, uh, Alaska has been very proactive in trying to manage as a commercial resource its salmon fishery, and apparently with some success. Uh, but could you comment on the bigger picture beyond the main uh, river systems. Jim Norton, you want to tackle that one? Or, or uh, if you want to talk about it in terms of California, I can talk about it. Jonathan, yeah. you're the Sam. Um, so Jonathan Rosenfield. Right. The uh, salmon, uh, the different species of salmon, different populations have colonized all of these watersheds up and down the coast, including the major river systems. Uh, certainly the salmon in these smaller coastal streams and, and the tributaries to the big river systems are fundamentally important to the kind of network uh, of, of salmon populations and how they sustain and repopulate areas when, when they happen to blink out naturally. Um, there are, I, I think it's a mixed bag of, you know, which populations have increased and which populations have decreased. The fact that salmon in Alaska are doing pretty well uh, tells us something, uh, because they don't have a lot of hydroelectric dams, uh, and, uh, you know, there's not a lot of salmon farming, uh, or any salmon farming, as far as I know, in Alaska. Um, so that sort of tells you what, you know, wh wh where, where some of the impacts are. Um, the bigger picture, you know, where, well, why are all salmon populations declining in a certain time or increasing in a certain time? The salmon are spending most of their life cycle in the ocean. Uh, and ocean productivity increases and decreases. And so in the past several years, uh, starting a few years ago and going back uh, to the beginning of, of this uh, century, uh, we were in a period of pretty low productivity. Uh, and so you saw salmon populations all over the place uh, decline. You saw massive declines um, in areas where uh, water management projects had been damaging the, the, the ecosystem, kind of ever-increasing damage. Um, and once the, you know, the flip of it is once the good ocean conditions went away, you really saw the negative impact of, of that water management. Uh, but I would say on the whole that, uh, you know, river systems that, that don't have uh, a lot of human activity and a lot of dams, uh, hydropower otherwise, and hatcheries uh, seem to be doing a lot better than, than the major... Uh, river systems or, or minor river systems that have those activities on them, but we can we can talk about the particular streams you're you're, you're thinking about. 
Let's have our next audience question, please. Yeah, hi. First, I want to thank you all for being here today. Really, your expertise is uh, really, really uh, helpful for me. Uh, I live in uh, Pacifica, and I've uh, had the opportunity to see some uh, improvements south of my way, like even Pescadero, they removed a dam there, a small dam, but it was helpful with the steelhead, and I think they do get a, a little bit of salmon up that stream, and uh, hopefully there will be more in the future. I have a two-part question. It has to do with sport fishing, and uh, one is, what impact does sport fishing have on salmon? You know, the guys going out in boats, two or three fishermen. And then the other part is, what is it? Does it, the removal of or the catching of striped bass, which uh, which I found out is a non-native species and and does consume many young salmon, is is the removal of striped bass? Would that be helpful in in mitigating some of the losses of salmon as well? That's it. Thank you. You want to talk about the. Predator control? Jim Norton? Predator control? Uh, human predator control? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm all for pulling out non-native juvenile salmon predators, especially if they're tasty. And so um, I, don't, I don't know what the specific relationship the, is with striped bass predation. And the, 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 uh, the striped bass issue has come up primarily by people uh, who export water from the Delta, at least in front of us. Uh, because they argue that the predation of the salmon population right. is significantly, if not primarily, attributable or might be to striped bass eating the salmon. If that were true, the, the, the program is a program to uh, off the striped bass would allow a continuation of water exports well, and hopefully then lead to improved salmon. That's kind of the the way the discussion goes. Our scientists took a look at the issue. We actually got letters from legislators saying it was a really great idea and all that. And I guess it's the best uh, summary is our scientists are skeptical that targeting one species, by the way, this is an undeniable fact, fish species tend to eat each other, uh, which, you know, you think about it, makes sense. Uh, how else do they live? Uh, they tend to eat each other. And the scientists said, look, this, this explanation of increase the, uh, the length of the striped bass fishing season, uh, reduce the size of the cat, uh, the, of the fish that can be kept, uh, you know, the, the number that can be caught and all the other things that are be actually being experimented with by the Department of Fish and Game are probably not going to have much impact. And if they did, you won't know it for many years. And, of course, in human society, none of this study stuff pleases anybody. If you're angry, you want results today, and you want to know exactly the answer to the question tomorrow, which is impossible for scientists. Jonathan Rosenfield? Yeah, uh, there, I, I really encourage all of you who haven't seen it yet to, to, to watch Salmon Running the Gauntlet. It's, it's available on, uh, on the PBS site. Uh, and in there, there's this uh, one of following the salmon's life history and following all the different things we do to try and uh, make things better for salmon except for the things that really, really impact them. Uh, there's an incredible sequence about uh, the bounty hunting program that exists on the, on the Colombian Snake Rivers where native predators uh, are, uh, are fished out by sport fishermen uh, and, and those fishermen are paid uh, 5 to $8 a fish for each fish that they turn in um, because the idea is, well, if you remove the predators, then these fish will survive better. 
despite the dams being there. So, so there's one character in there who's identified as a bounty hunter, uh, and he's normally a contractor, but he gives up his contracting during the sport fishing season uh, because he can make better money pulling out uh, these pike minnow that are about this big. Um, you know, and, and that's how we're spending billions of dollars a year to get around this problem, part, part of how we're uh, spending billions of dollars a year to get around a problem that's created by uh, our, our water management infrastructure. Um, but that, that so, so I would say, great if you catch a striped bass, uh, you know, go ahead and enjoy it. Probably did something good for salmon, but that's, that's not how we're gonna fix the salmon problem. And the, uh, the you know, when you watch the, the, the film and when you listen to the debates that Phil has to uh, oversee every day, you, you see this phenomenon evolve where Everybody wants to point the finger at something else that's really the problem. It's not our development of water. It's it's ocean conditions, which, of course, we can't control. It's not development of water. It's predatory fish. It's not development of water. It's some pesticide that we haven't discovered what it is, but that's probably causing the problem here. Uh, and, you know, seeing the video and seeing the various different ways that we try and avoid what the real problem is uh, reminds me of, uh, I was just reading the the autobiography by Keith Richards, uh, noted guitar player, uh, noted... And salmon fisherman. Salmon fisherman, probably probably not. Uh, noted guitar guitarist and, and noted drug addict, right? And he's describing his life of addiction to heroin and cocaine and alcohol and various other things. And I noticed through the book that there's just an inordinate number of... And then the room burst into flames stories. Right, and at one point he says, you know, so I was in this hotel room and we were doing all these drugs and we we're playing all this music, and then the drapes burst into flames. But it was the drapes that burst into flames. I had nothing to do with it, <laughs> you know. And that's that's the kind of situation you see around water management and salmon. You know, it's like, oh, I mean, I see the salmon declining, but it's the salmon that are declining. It's it's not me. Um, and the fact is that it is it is us. Um, so. Uh, you know, we, we have to really get real and kind of focus on what the fundamental root causes of the problem is, uh, and it's not striped bass that have been here for uh, a few hundred years. They are introduced, but have been here for a few hundred years, uh, or uh, pike minnow in, in, in the Columbia Snake River system that have co-evolved with those salmon and, and, and been quite fine doing so. And what makes that story even more absurd is that there are non-native walleye and bass in those same reservoirs that were stocked there decades before as part of a non-native sport fishery that are not being targeted under right. the Bounty Hunt Program. The Bounty Hunt Program is over $3 million to reduce the impact of a native fish while people are also sport fishing for non-native uh, predatory species. And this is where you start to look at these systems and realize how badly we get tangled up in, uh, in doing everything we can to avoid dealing with that singular problem, or if not singular, that limiting problem uh, in the form of, of something on, on the rivers where I live, like the hydropower system. Down here, it's a little bit more complicated. But we have bounty hunters immediately below these giant 100-foot dams making $35,000 a summer so that we don't have to deal with these things. The visual juxtaposition of a contractor who's getting paid part of three and three million dollar annual budget 
to avoid having to deal with this great big hulking canvas right behind him <laughs> is really quite incredible. <laughs> and unfortunately, what these guys both have to deal with on a much more regular day-to-day -day basis than I is that one of the, un one of the unfortunate responses to decline is that people tend to taint, uh, cling really tightly to the agents of that decline. And so it gets paradoxically harder to make the big changes you need as the resource starts to deteriorate because everyone thinks it feels more fragile and they just want to hold on to what you got. And so we do things like put more money into the bounty hunt program and spend more money trucking and driving fish downstream. And uh, it's, this is not, a lot of these really aren't scientific questions anymore. You know, it's not, at some point, this stuff stops being an effective surrogate for just having the courage to deal with the big issues. Unfortunately, we have to end it there. Our thanks to Jim Norton, River Guide and creator of the PBS documentary, Salmon Running the Gauntlet, Phil Eisenberg, chair of the Delta Stewardship Council, and Jonathan Rosenfield, conservation biologist at the Bay Institute. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening on the radio. Thank you for our audience here in San Francisco. Thank you.